You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. Another world. Another time. In the age of wonder. There was once a dream. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper, and it would vanish. A battle between good and evil. You don't know the power of the dark side. Or shall I find a new adversary so close to my own level? Try the local sewer. You know of the rebellion against the Empire? The Avengers, Earth's mightiest heroes. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. One of these days, I'm going to have a stick of my own. I'm Groot. Welcome to the Neverland Podcast. The podcast for lovers of Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Please welcome your host, Jeremy. I thought he'd be taller. Yeah, I can fly. All it takes is faith and trust. Well, if it isn't the Star Spangled Man with a plan, what is your plan today? Up to Neverland! <laughs> Take your pixie out of your pocket, Neverlanders. I tell you what, we're going to have a heck of a time here flying to Neverland because I am your host, of course, the Spider-Pan, Jeremy. Uh, But we have a great interview with Mike Quinn. Uh, You will know him from the Star Wars films as Nine Nund. And if you cannot remember who that is... You will remember by the end of this, but Mike Quinn has got a great resume of a lot of different films that he's worked on that I know you've seen and have loved, and you're going to enjoy that conversation. I do have a few bits of Disney news that I want to dive into real fast before we get there. Disney and Geek Universe to bring you the best in comics, toys, movies, and entertainment. This is news from around Neverland. Okay, who doesn't love baby elephants? Okay, if you actually raised your hand up saying that you don't like baby elephants, then uh, okay, you're you're odd. Uh, but there is a new baby elephant out there in the Kilimanjaro safaris named Stella. She has first gotten to make her appearance now. Uh, I probably announced the birth of it. I do try to keep an eye on it. And uh, in fact, there's a Facebook page I've found for Disney's animal... Uh, well, it's not Dan's... I'll have to look it up again. <laughs> but look on Facebook, Disney Animals. They actually have uh, a Facebook like page that you can look in. There was a video they had out that showed all the different births they had in 2016. But here, lately, very recently, Stella got to make her first steps onto the savannah with her mother, a 28-year-old elephant named Donna. And uh, there was some great video. Uh, they've got it with the Disney Parks blog. It's out on their YouTube page. You can see it. Uh, an adorable little elephant. It's really, really cool. Uh, so definitely go and check that out. While you're on the Disney Parks blog, they actually are asking you to vote for either Mickey or Goofy to go to the NFL Pro Bowl in Ad- Orlando. Yeah, normally this is held in Hawaii, uh, so now it's going to be in Orlando, and of course that being close enough to uh, one of our parks here for us Disney fans, Mickey or Goofy is going to go, and you're going to get a chance to choose between the two. So make sure you go to the Disney Parks blog and vote as many times as you would like. I haven't seen any limits, but yeah, go and vote, because I, I voted once, and it, it came up again when I when it had a thing to return to the poll. I came back, and it looks like it was going to let me vote again. So well, I think you can do it more than once. Also, this, of course, is Marathon Weekend at Walt Disney World. Many of you probably know. Some of you probably are there. 
Uh, but there is a 30-year-old man there, Adam Gorlitsky, who is pushing the boundaries and bridging the gap, as it says on the Parks blog, uh, on what it means to be disabled and able-bodied. He is... Well, he's lost his ability to walk as a result of a car accident. He's paraplegic. And he participated in the marathon event. This is really cool. So he was in a Run Disney race, uh, and it says on the Parks blog that his inspiring story began 10 years ago when the car accident damaged his spinal cord, paralyzing him from the waist down. And almost a decade of being told he will never walk again, he has chosen... He was chosen as a candidate for an exoskeleton machine, a robotic suit that would enable him to stand and walk for the first time. And since receiving the robotic suit, he has dedicated his life to walking in races, sharing his extraordinary story and inspiring others to overcome adversity. And they have a photo of him. Uh, he, he still has some crutches that he's using, you know, to help with balance. But uh, you can kind of see he's strapped. He has these things along his legs and... Uh, it's enabling him to walk. So this is really a very cool medical breakthrough for one thing and very inspiring as well. So congratulations there. If you happen to be a, one of my listeners, you're out there, you're hearing this. Awesome job. I love it. All right. So there's also something going on with the Disney Vacation Club. It's celebrating 25 years and beyond here in 2016. And so 2017 is where the beyond actually moves forward. Uh, so they're unveiling a membership Magic Ever After, which is a colorful collection of extended membership extras from 2016, which is additional offers and opportunities for 2017 and a new Disney developments that together is going to help pen the next great chapter in the community's collective story. Uh, so this apparently is a good time to get involved with the Disney Vacation Club if you can afford it and you so choose to do so. Alrighty, uh, well that's pretty much everything that I have wrapped up. I did find a few more pictures of Baby Stella uh, on the Parks blog, so I do encourage you to go and check that out as well. Uh, one other thing that I do want to make a note of... Alright, we know Zendaya was going to have a major role in Spider-Man Homecoming. And, you know, I, I remember reading before that she was supposed to be playing a character named Michelle, and I, myself, I got confused with the trailer seeing, you know, as somebody who's playing... Liz Allen, who I thought might be Zendaya, because I'm not familiar with him. But that is Laura Harrier, who is playing Liz Allen that you've seen in the trailer. I don't know if we've seen Zendaya in that in that trailer at all, uh, unless Michelle is the girl who kind of goofs on uh, Peter Parker and his friend, who I found out is Ned Leeds, which is actually a character from Spider-Man lore. Uh, I, I believe he's a reporter. I'd have to go. I need to go look that up again uh, because I do recall Ned Leeds being a character. Now, this is kind of interesting that he's he's friends with him, and I have seen in the cast list that they do have someone playing Betty Brant, which is important because if you're going to get into the early days of Spider-Man, uh, one of the early girls that he had a crush on was, of course, Liz Allen, and then he moved on with Betty Brant, and there is somebody listed as playing Betty Brant. Her name is Angori Rice, uh, and of course, as I mentioned, Ned Leeds. Uh, now, the interesting thing is in the comics, Ned Leeds is sort of a rival for Betty Brant's uh, affections. Uh, there's a little bit of a thing kind of going on because Peter's kind of interested in Betty Brand because they are actually close to his age. Uh, well, interestingly enough, uh, Spider-Man was fighting the Hobgoblin at one time and Ned actually follows him to the villain's hideout and when the Hobgoblin realizes Ned is present, he captures and brainwashes him, deciding it would be better to have a scapegoat in case he is unmasked. So Ned Lee is now wanting to find out about the Kingpin, approaches his son Richard Fist, discovering that Richard hates his father, Leeds helps him create a secret identity as the crime boss the Rose. Kingsley wanting to become the new crime leader wants Ned to remove the Kingman from the scene. I mean, there's there's a few things I'm finding about Ned Lee. Now, I, I knew about a connection with the Hobgoblin, uh, but, you know, 
Ned was not actually the Hobgoblin that I'm ever aware of, where he, with his brainwashing, did he become the Hobgoblin, but with the kidnapping of him. But it's interesting, though. This is kind of like a minor character from Spider-Man history and a reporter, and having him in this film, uh, played by Jacob Batalon. <laughs> I almost want to call it Battalion, but I'm pretty sure that's not the way you pronounce it. Uh, but it is showing that there is some other characters from the Spider-Man universe that are kind of being brought in that we wouldn't normally see. Uh, so I find that to be very, very interesting. Uh, we do know also that we will be seeing uh, an appearance by Stan Lee in the film. No one has heard anything on where he's going to pop up, but of course we're going to keep our eyes open for that. But I thought that was very interesting, and I wanted to uh, make sure I put that out there that uh, I, I myself had gotten confused that Zendaya was perhaps playing Liz Allen after I saw that she was a focal character, but no, that is not Zendaya. Zendaya's character of Michelle, I don't know if we've seen her or not, but that might be that other girl who calls Ned Leeds and Peter Parker a couple of losers. But anyways, enough of that. Uh, I have to move on here. We have so much fun. I have a very special story to share with you in the Neverland story time. Uh, sorry, I don't have a trailer I'm going to share with you this week, although there was a mid-season trailer for Star Wars Rebels, which was very cool. But I don't know how much you'd really get out of it with me trying to comment on it, because I'm still back on the Clone Wars. I just finished Season 5, and I'm in Season 6 now on Netflix. And as soon as I finish that, I do plan on picking back up in Star Wars Rebels, where I was watching back in Season 2. So I'm really behind on that. So I really can't comment other than the fact it was very cool. We got to see an Obi-Wan Kenobi older uh facing off with Darth Maul. You know, they don't see if there's a fight about to happen, but I'm pretty sure it was. Obi-Wan was sitting there at the fire, and Darth Maul shows up, which is very interesting. I also have seen some commercials for, uh, for Saul Guerrero making some appearance in Star Wars Rebels. So, I mean, it's really picking up and connecting in, and uh, I'm very excited to get caught up and start watching Season 3. So I hope you're enjoying Season 3, and if you're not watching Star Wars Rebels at all, I do recommend it. It is very good. Uh, I, I, this first season is a little bit... You know, it's not quite all there, a little childish, but by the second season, it really starts getting good, and all I'm seeing from the, the third season has got me very excited to start watching it myself. But uh, speaking of Star Wars, uh, let's get into the Neverland story time. How about it? This is your Neverland story time. You can listen along with your MP3 device. You will know it is time to listen when you hear the chime like this. Let's begin now. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there was a scavenger, a soldier, and a lost droid. This is the story of Star Wars, The Force Awakens. You can read along with me in your book. You'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear this sound. Let's begin now. Poe Dameron was on a mission. The Resistance had sent the pilot and his trusty droid, BB-8, to recover a map that would help the group find Luke Skywalker. Luke was a powerful Jedi Knight, known for defeating the evil Empire. But Luke had disappeared many years before. A new enemy, the First Order, threatened to destroy peace in the galaxy, and the Resistance needed Luke once more. Poe and BB-8's mission took them to a small village on the sandy planet of Jakku. There, Lor Santeca, an old friend of Luke's, gave the map to Poe. 
But moments later, First Order stormtroopers attacked the village. On my command, fire. Poe and BB-8 fled to their ship, but it was quickly destroyed by the stormtroopers. Poe knew he had to get the map to safety. He gave it to BB-8 and ran back to help Lore. But someone else had reached the old man first. Kylo Ren, a vicious warrior for the First Order, held Lore captive. You know what I've come for. Poe fired at Kylo, but it was no use. Kylo used the Force to deflect Poe's blasts and quickly captured the Resistance pilot. Kylo, Poe, and the stormtroopers returned to the First Order Star Destroyer orbiting Jakku. The soldiers went back to their barracks, all except one stormtrooper named FN-2187. That battle had been his first, and he hoped it would be his last. He felt terrible about the attack, and had only pretended to fire his blaster at the villagers on Jakku. Suddenly, the stormtrooper heard a voice behind him. FN-2187. Submit your blaster for inspection. It was his commanding officer, Captain Phasma. She suspected that FN-2187 had failed to fire on anyone in the village, but she wanted to prove it. FN-2187 was ready to leave the First Order, but he'd need a pilot to help him escape. Fortunately, he knew just where to find one. Meanwhile, on Jakku, a scavenger named Ray was searching through a crashed starship for spare parts. She was looking for anything she could use or trade for food nearby at Nima Outpost. It was a hard life, but it was the only one Ray had ever known. All that changed, however, when she came across a little round droid. The droid was lost and refused to leave her side. On board the Star Destroyer, FN-2187 had freed Poe, but they still needed to get off the ship. The trooper asked the pilot if he could fly a Special Forces TIE fighter. I can fly anything. Together, FN-2187 and Poe stole one of the enemy ships and escaped into space. I always wanted to fly one of these things. I'm Poe, Poe Demo. Poe asked if he could call the soldier Finn instead and the former stormtrooper happily agreed. Poe told Finn that they needed to head back to Jakku and find his droid BB-8, but Finn protested. We go back to Jakku, we die! But there was no time to argue. A blast from the Star Destroyer suddenly rocked their ship. Poe looked over at Finn in the gunner's seat. Now would be a good time to start shooting! But it was too late. Alarms rang as their TIE fighter plummeted toward the sandy planet below. Finn managed to eject before the ship hit the ground, but the only sign of Poe was his jacket. Finn grabbed the jacket and shed his stormtrooper armor before heading across the hot desert. He needed to find help. After wandering for hours, Fenn finally found an outpost. He was shocked when he saw the droid Poe had described. BB-8 was still at Ray's side. Fenn did his best to tell Ray everything about BB-8's mission for the Resistance, but it was a complicated story. Listen, 
I've had a pretty messed up day. And the day was about to get worse. A team of stormtroopers was searching the outpost for the lost droid. Finn, Ray, and BB-8 looked for somewhere to hide, but the stormtroopers had already spotted them. Ray knew they couldn't escape the stormtroopers on foot, but they might be able to in a ship. She led them toward the shipyard, and they hopped aboard an old Carillion light freighter that hadn't been flown in years. Ray fired up the engines and took off while Finn hurried to the gunner's seat. Two TIE fighters flew down and fired on them. Finn took aim and fired back. Ray heard his blaster bolt strike a direct hit. But Finn saw that the TIE fighters were still close behind them. We need cover! Ray banked hard and turned the ship toward the fields of wreckage out in the desert. Finn shot down one of the TIEs. Then Ray flew right through the inside of a crashed Star Destroyer, catching the other TIE off guard. Finn fired and the enemy ship exploded in a shower of sparks. Ray quickly flew into space, breathing a sigh of relief. Now they could get BB-8 and the map back to the Resistance. But even though they had escaped the First Order, there were other dangers lurking. As Ray and Finn were planning what to do next, their ship suddenly lost power. Someone's locked onto us. All controls have been overridden. A massive cargo hauler loomed above their ship, pulling them into its docking bay. Finn, Ray, and BB-8 hid, listening as two strangers boarded the ship. The newcomers immediately began looking through the ship and within moments found the trio's hiding place. To Finn and Ray's surprise, the two figures were an old man and a Wookiee. Chewie, we're home. The man introduced himself as Han Solo and explained that the ship, the Millennium Falcon, was his. Ray recognized his name at once. Han was one of the heroes who had helped Luke Skywalker defeat the Empire. Since that time, Han and Chewbacca had been involved in some decidedly less heroic jobs. Even as Han was talking to Ray and Finn, two rival gangs boarded the cargo ship and demanded payment for one of Han's failed missions. Han, Chewie, and their three new friends escaped to the Millennium Falcon and jumped to light speed. Hang on back there! Safe again for the moment, Ray explained that BB-8 had a map that would help lead the Resistance to Luke Skywalker. This droid has to get to the Resistance base as soon as possible. Then BB-8 projected the map he had been protecting. Upon hearing the name of his old friend, Han agreed to help. Han thought his friend Maz might be able to help too. They flew to the lush planet of Takodana, where Maz's castle provided refuge for every human and alien in that corner of the galaxy. Maz sized each of them up, finally turning to Ray. The short alien asked about Ray's past and gazed up at her with big, questioning eyes. Ray shifted uncomfortably. I'm no one. I'm just a scavenger. Maz disagreed. She suggested that Ray was in tune with the Force, but the girl didn't believe her. Ray fled the castle. She wanted to find somewhere she could be alone. 
But even Maz's castle wasn't safe from the First Order. A spy among Maz's guests had called down troops to attack. Han, Chewie, and Finn did their best to fight off the First Order stormtroopers. Maz had given Finn a lightsaber, which he used to clear his way through the battle. He had to find Rey. It was too late, though. Kylo Ren had found Rey first. She fired at him, but her blaster was no match for Kylo's lightsaber. Kylo captured her and took her back to his shuttle. Han, Finn, and the others were able to escape only after a squad of resistance ships appeared in the sky. They had finally been able to track down BB-8's homing signal and had arrived to help. The resistance forces, led by General Leia Organa, escorted the Millennium Falcon safely back to their base. Once there, Finn was surprised to see a familiar face, Poe Dameron's. The pilot had survived the crash on Jakku and was once again flying for the resistance. BB-8 beeped with joy as he reunited with Poe. The Resistance had learned that the First Order completed work on a massive weapon called the Star Killer that could destroy entire star systems. The First Order had already used the planet-sized weapon to obliterate the New Republic capital. The Resistance was the only force left to stop the evil group. After the Battle of Takodana, Kylo took Rey to the frozen planet that housed the Star Killer. There, he questioned her, trying to learn any information she might be hiding. Is it true? You're just a scavenger. Ray was surprised to hear the echo of her own words in Kylo's question. As she looked into the villain's eyes, she sensed a connection between them. It was almost as if she could see into his mind. Suddenly, Ray was flooded with images and emotions. She could see Kylo's anger and hurt and fear. Kylo pulled back. He couldn't believe it. Was she using the Force? One thing was clear. Rey was more than just a scavenger. Meanwhile, the Resistance was planning its attack on the Starkiller base. Han, Chewie, and Finn would land on the enemy base and take down its shields from the inside. Then, Poe and his team of pilots could fly in and destroy the crucial part of the weapon that kept it from overheating. The Star Killer would explode in a massive power overload. Finn also hoped he could find Rey and rescue her from Kylo Ren. Poe wished Finn luck, then hopped into his X-Wing and took off. All teams, altitude confirmed. Hold for jump to light speed on my go. Alone in her cell, Rey was still recovering from the strange experience of looking into Kylo's mind. She felt different and powerful. She wondered if she could do it again. Rey called to the guard in her cell and ordered him to remove her restraints. To her surprise, he did. Rey ran from the cell and quietly scaled the walls of the base, searching for a way to escape. Han, Chewie, and Finn had just landed on the Star Killer base. They could see a great beam extending into the sky, drawing in power from a nearby star. Once the star was extinguished, the weapon would be ready to fire. They had to destroy the Star Killer before that happened. 
They fought their way deep into the Starkiller base. First Order forces were everywhere, and time was running out. Finn spotted Captain Phasma. His old commander would know exactly how to get to the shields. Chewie grabbed the unsuspecting captain. When Phasma saw Finn, she tried to call him by his old identification code. Finn corrected her. The name's Finn, and I'm in charge now. Phasma had no choice. She led him to the shield's controls and disabled them. Poe and his pilots circled high above the Starkiller base. Red Squad, Blue Squad, take my lead. The First Order's fleet was firing at them. Poe dodged blast after blast, taking his squad around for another attack run. Then he received the message he had been waiting for. The Starkiller's shields were down. Poe smiled. All right, let's light it up! But as the X-Wings fired, the Resistance pilots discovered that there was still a dense wall between them and the weapon's cooling device. From the Starkiller base, Finn saw the X-Wings attacking. He realized they had to take the wall down. But as soon as they did, it would be only a matter of time until the base exploded. Fortunately, Ray ran right into them. Together, Han, Chewie, Finn, and Ray sprinted toward the cooling device. Han and Chewie planted explosives, while Ray and Finn kept watch for stormtroopers. But it wasn't stormtroopers who found them. It was Kylo Ren. He was searching the area for resistance forces when Han saw him approaching. Instead of raising his blaster, Han stepped out of the shadows and called out to Kylo. Kylo spun around and looked at Han. I've been waiting for this day for a long time. So had Han. Ever since Kylo had fallen to the dark side of the Force, Han had been waiting for his son to return to him. Now, the Star Killer was about to be destroyed, and Han reached out to Kylo one last time, begging him to come home. But Kylo would not listen. He ignited his lightsaber and silenced his father forever. Chewie cried out in horror, but he still had a mission to complete. He managed to set off the explosives, but a squad of stormtroopers separated him from Finn and Rey. Finn and Rey ran through the twisting hallways of the Starkiller base. They felt the planet rock beneath their feet as Poe fired on the weakened cooling device, destroying it once and for all. Now they just had to get back to their ship. But when they reached the edge of the base, Kylo Ren was waiting for them. Finn drew the lightsaber Maz had given him. Kylo sneered. That weapon is mine. Come get it. Finn used every ounce of his training to fight Kylo, but it wasn't enough. Only someone with a strong connection to the Force could defeat such a warrior. With a mighty blow, Kylo knocked Finn to the ground, wounding him. Kylo used the Force to pull Finn's lightsaber from his grip. The weapon flew toward Kylo and then sped right past him and into Rey's waiting hand. She ignited the weapon and charged at Kylo. Rey's blue lightsaber clashed against the burning red of Kylo's. Anger filled her as she struck blow after blow against the man who had hurt her friends. She could feel the Force within her surging with power. 
Kylo hit the ground as Rey's lightsaber cut across his face. Rey realized she could end everything. She could destroy Kylo for good. Suddenly, the Starkiller base rumbled beneath their feet. A great gulf opened between them as the planet began to tear itself apart. Kylo was beyond her reach, but she had defeated him for now. Rey knelt beside Finn as stormtroopers arrived and helped the injured Kylo to a shuttle. Chewie picked up Rey and Finn in the Falcon. Rey took the pilot's seat at the Wookiee's side, and together they set course for the Resistance base. Behind them, the planet collapsed in a burst of light and heat. The Resistance had destroyed the weapon once and for all. Back at the Resistance base, Rey still had a long journey ahead of her. The First Order had been crippled, but not defeated. Kylo and his soldiers would return. The Resistance knew that Rey needed to be taught the ways of the Force, and that only Luke Skywalker could train her. Carrying BB-8's precious map and the lightsaber Maz had given Finn, Rey said goodbye to Leia and boarded the Millennium Falcon alongside Chewbacca and R2-D2. They were off to find the lost Jedi. When the Millennium Falcon reached Octo, an old man was waiting for Rey. Luke Skywalker was strong in the Force and had sensed her arrival. Rey handed the Jedi Master the lightsaber. It was his, after all. Rey didn't know what the future held, but she was sure that her adventures were only just beginning. To Disney and beyond. All right, Neverlanders, this is going to be an epic conversation, I can tell you right now. Uh, some of my favorite movies are the area in which this, our next guest, has worked in. We'll just put it like that. <laughs> but we'll just start from the very beginning, and we'll just introduce everybody to Mike Quinn. Hello, Mike Quinn. Well, hello, thank you, Jeremy and everybody and all the Neverlanders out there. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh my goodness! Uh, I just doing a little bit of research and everything because uh, I had only known before. It's like, oh, this guy's like connected with Nine Numb and everything from Star Wars. That's really cool. I gotta go and see what all he's done. And uh, after looking at some of the things you've done, I mean, you we definitely had to be able to talk to you because you've got an epic story of even how you got started. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's true, and, and um, it's funny because as, as the years go on, and I know that uh, you know your uh, your your show has has a, a pretty well a, a most mostly Disney slant, right? Mostly, but we do like to cheat our way into yeah. Star Trek and He Man and stuff. Exactly, <laughs> yes, because everything is connected and it all overlaps and that kind of thing. But it's funny how everything always seems to come back to Disney in the end. You know, it's it's great though. It's a good thing. You know, I. I was a big Disney fan when I was a kid as well, even before I was into Muppets. And uh, so I just loved all the Disney uh, animation cartoons and used to draw them when I was a kid. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, so, so to have those connections uh, you know, later on has, has been a, an actual real treat for me as well, you know? 
Yeah, if they just buy like Star Trek and Doctor Who, they might as well tattoo their name on my forehead. And that's just <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. BBC and Doctor Who. I know. Yes, that's the show I, I would still like to work on. Just to, yeah, having grown up with that, of course, uh, since since I was little, I remember the second Doctor. So. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, didn't yeah, guess, no. I didn't tell the ninth doctor like like i guess the most fans we when yeah. they brought it back and they started showing on bbc america we're like oh this is really cool and so yeah yeah the relaunch was was really wonderful and, and we've, we've been enjoying those too so yeah it's a great show a lot of friends that work on it and, and of course there are some star wars performers that, that work on doctor who as well so all uh, then new you know it's great it's awesome very cool. Well, especially with all the amazing alien creatures in there that, you know, you're the type of people they want. As well, yeah, yeah. And then you have people like uh, Jeremy Bullock, of course, who, who was an actor in, right. in the older Doctor Who, so as, as a human. So, oh, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was pretty yeah. sure he was in, in Doctor Who, yeah. Oh, so i got to look that up and so I can see some pictures. See, it's all connected. Everything joins up. Yeah. And for <laughs> those who are not in the know, Jeremy Bullock was... The actor for Boba Fett, not the voice, but he was actually there in the armor, walking around Empire Strikes Back. And Jedi, yeah, correct. Yes, Return of the Jedi, yep. Uh, Which, he has an awesome name, being named Jeremy, so you know he's going to do awesome things. Well, he has a very good chance of success, yes, Yes. for sure. (laughs) So, yeah, you have a lot to live up to now. Oh, yes, I do. (laughs) But you started really early and actually were making your own puppet and magic shows when you were young? I, th- I want to say maybe I was, gosh, I mean, uh, my first appearance on stage, I was probably like four years old or something and got halfway through a song and couldn't finish it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I had, a, I had a, a, a magic show and a puppet show, uh, glove puppets, uh, when I was probably maybe from seven or eight onwards and nine years old. So, I uh, yeah, I wrote this little script where these little glove puppets would uh, give each other They'd get in a fight, and it was just an excuse for a big uh, custard pie fight, so the puppets could throw <laughs> cream pies in each other's faces, and that went down well. I thought that was a good finish, so I wrote that script and, and drew scenery out of cardboard and taped it up into this little booth, and and yeah, had a, a sort of a, a, a little magic show with a few illusions as well. And I used to do auditions and for, for TV talent shows and things like that. Of course, I was I would never get in anything, but. <laughs> you were but, trying, uh, you know, know exactly i was learning and getting into it all but uh, yeah so that was that would be in the um 70s early 70s basically so uh, what was it that you got you interested in doing puppets i'm i'm not sure because they were they were always a part of my life i mean uh you know in the uk uh, people like myself grew up with with little old black and white puppet films uh, like muffin the mule and andy pandy and and wooden tops and things like that so that was always a part of part of our, our childhood uh, people from my generation and um and uh uh seeing puppet show seeing punch and judy shows on the beach and and puppet shows uh uh in my local town uh park live shows during the summer <coughs> that uh, i later um found out that uh that this uh, husband and wife mike and ann Barclay, they had a, pu- a public company called Peck's Puppets, so I'd watch these shows every summer in my park. Uh, really good shows. And it, it turns out that uh, their son was Dave Barclay, who I would end up working with on The Dark Crystal, and he was Jab of the Heart and helped with Yoda, and we ended up having a company in the UK together for 10 years, and now he's over in the States as well. But So yeah, um, so that's kind of how I got started. I, I had my own marionettes and glove puppets as well that I would 
I would uh, play with and, and play, figure out little stories. So there was always that interest there. I think the very first puppet probably was trying to make my teddy bear come to life and make him look <laughs> around and walk around. So it sort of came from that, I suppose, but it's always been there. And it wasn't until Muppets really came on the scene in the UK in a big way, which would be 1976 with The Muppet Show. And it hit big in the UK a lot earlier. So, so I kind of got fascinated with that and began to obsess about how these puppets were made and how they were operated and trying to get my head around that. And so so then uh, my obsession from Disney cartoons kind of switched to Muppets, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah. actually is what led you up to eventually uh, sneaking past security or bribing your way past security on your website, it says, at age 15, so you could meet Jim Henson? It's true, it's true. On a regular, about every other week, I would uh, have a day off school and uh, <laughs> I highly recommend I think I think it was called work experience back then. I don't know what they call it now, but you know the, the school was just happy to be rid of me. They they didn't know what to do with me anymore. I used to um, I was the first first boy in school to take uh, sewing classes or needlework as it was called then, and uh, otherwise it was all girls, you know. And the teacher was freaking out because she never taught a boy before. So I spent uh, the last year or two uh, instead of making belt buckles and wooden things i made puppets and i could i could make them at, at school instead of at home so i thought this was the greatest thing ever so then i would take those puppets along to the tv studio and and they kind of got to know me at the at muppets <clears throat> while they were shooting the very last season of the muppet show at uh, elstree uh, uh Boreham Wood. so um yeah so that, I'd, I'd usually go on guest star days and get to see various people uh perform like um gene kelly and and uh yeah whole whole, whole bunch of big big actors uh, uh, diana ross i mean great stuff yeah so uh so they got to know me yeah and, and i think eventually they just uh, took pity on me and and i'd i bugged them for a job a few times and they ended up saying let's just give this this guy a job you know i think that was jim it's like oh my goodness but he was always worried about taking me away from from uh, a college education, you know, because I was 16 when I when I started there. Um, but, you know, that wasn't really an option for me. There was nowhere to go in the UK to learn this kind of career anyway, this kind of puppetry. It didn't exist at that time. So you had to be, you had to have an apprenticeship, really. So I kind of had my apprenticeship, you know, under Jim and Frank and those guys on the job on Muppets. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So what was it like when you first met Jim Henson? Were you were you a little bit starstruck? Oh, definitely, definitely, yeah. I mean, he, he, but he, those guys were always very good at putting people at, at ease, you know. I mean, he was a very, very kind, natural person. So I met him, actually. I met the main Muppet guys a few years before, I want to say in 1977. Um, I think it was just before they were beginning the second season of the Muppet Show, and they hadn't yet made the Muppet movie. And they were appearing at a, a local um, London radio station uh, on a Saturday lunchtime. Um, they, I think they just had a, a big hit on the uh, music charts with uh, one of the records. So the five main guys uh, went along and you know did voices and, and interviews on this radio show. So I they announced it the week before. So I went along and and got them to autograph a, a picture. And I sort of intercepted them on the way in, basically, <laughs> as one does. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that was my very first meeting with them. So and then I met them again a second time uh, at the premiere of the Muppet movie. I, I phoned up Lou Grade's office and got tickets for that out of my pocket money and went along to the world premiere of the Royal World premiere of the Muppet movie in, in London. I guess that would have been seventy eight or so. Mm -hmm. So I think I was fourteen 
<laughs> so yes, obsession is a good thing. If it's the right kind because it does it does drive you forward and and uh, gives you focus. So there you go, people. If you want to achieve something, you have to obsess yeah. and focus. Yeah, and little would you have known after seeing the first Muppet movie that by the time they were making the Great Muppet Caper, you'd be working with them. Yeah, I had no clue. I mean, uh, at that point, I don't. I mean, I know that, that, that they struck a two-picture deal with Lou Grade for the Dark Crystal and the Great Muppet Caper. Jim wanted to make the Dark Crystal. Lou Grade wanted to make the second Muppet film. So uh, they struck up a deal, and, and it ended up being a, a back-to-back picture deal with the same uh, company and the same, pretty well the same crew and everything, too. So it was kind of cool. You know, we rolled straight from the Muppet Caper into uh, uh, Dark Crystal, and we're doing film tests uh, at the end of shooting for, for Dark Crystal. So it was really neat. It was a, a lovely time, very creative. Golden era, really. Yeah. And I, well, I remember when I first saw, uh, I was very young when The Dark Crystal first came out. I remember when I was first seeing the trailers, it scared me to death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people say that. It's quite funny, but I guess I guess it makes sense. I don't you know, think of it as, as a scary film, but um, I, with it being so kind of real and dark and, and um, uh, I guess it had that sort of gravity to it that I could certainly see you know, how it could be really kind of creepy and, and strange to a, a young a young kid. Yeah. And it was the first thing like that. Woo. Yeah, yeah, the, the whole environment, every, the lighting, everything. And that, it was the first, uh, you know, all puppet, <coughs> excuse me, all puppet creature film uh, ever, really. And it was even before E.T., of course. Yeah. So, um, you know, all we'd had that was even close to that would have been Yoda and Empire Strikes Back. Um and, and of course, the rest of that, that uh, you know, he was with humans anyway, yeah. Luke and, and what have you. So, um, so yeah, it was it, it was a new thing for everyone to get their heads around. So I could I could certainly see that. But mm-hmm. it's nice that films like that and even Labyrinth now. I guess once they reach that sort of big thirty year uh, status, um, they seem to become almost like cult films now. And, yeah, you know, have a cult following, I should say, which is uh, uh, surprising, but it's it's actually really cool you know everyone worked so hard on these movies and and you at the time you don't think okay what are people going to be thinking of these in 30 35 years time no one can really people don't think that far ahead when they're making a movie i seriously doubt jim was thinking you know oh people are going to revere these movies you know three four decades on i don't think he was i seriously doubt he was thinking about that Yeah, definitely. I think it's the scariness of the Skeksis that that pulled me in, though, as well, because you had this epic journey of Jin to defeat the Skeksis, and so I really got behind it because, like, I you know, I completely understood the Skeksis as being these evil, tyrannical creatures that I didn't know how it was going to end up in the end, but following Jen's journey to uh, defeat them and save uh, their their world from the Skeksis, I could definitely get into, because they were scary, and especially the Gartham. (laughs) The Gartham were frightening as anything, so... Well, they were scary to us, too. I mean, yeah, when we were... I mean, those things were dangerous. Uh, Mm -hmm. Those blades they had on the claws, you know, we'd be down in the... uh, The sets were raised, like, you know, three and a half, four feet off the ground. So when we were doing the things like the Podling Village... Um, you know, we'd be under there with our podlings on our arms and the, and the Gartham were breaking through the walls and chasing them through the fields outside and stuff. And, you know, we had to wear uh, uh, hard hats uh, because we might get clipped with these things. Um, you know, it would, yeah, no, one could have fallen over into the hole with us. And they, so it was kind of dangerous, really. It's it kind of scary for us uh, with all the breakaway walls and things that they had. So, yeah, the hazards of, of being on a set, definitely... 
And the podlings were definitely some of the more lovable characters. They always, uh, especially in the scene where they're having their their dinner and their little party and dancing. I don't know <laughs> why, but it reminds me of something out of Fiddler on the Roof. And oh, so I always yeah. related the podlings to being, you know, like the Jewish people living in Russia at the time where there's that oppression, but they're just happy and, you know, having a rough life of being happy and positive about it. I just, that's why I love yeah. the podlings. Yeah, that's uh, sort of the underdog in a way. And, you know, they don't, they didn't have, uh, didn't have a lot, but they kind of were, well, they're also more earthy, very earthy uh, yeah. characters. So, you know, they're, 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 they're much more in tune with, with nature. Um, and that, that was something that was very specific. All their, their instruments were made out of gourds and, and that kind of thing. Their, all their clothes were very much, uh, uh, natural silks and earth tones, like they would, they'd been dyed with berries and all that. So it was, yeah, it's a, a neat little, little thing. We, we built, um, 50, I think. It was about 50 podlings altogether. Some were, uh, some had, had blinks in them. Some, some had like little hand clappers and, and, uh, a, a few, <clears throat> there were a few, a couple of marionettes that were built. Um, but the rest were all just regular, uh, foam, cast foam hand puppets. And so I was one of the, the, the guys that constructed those, uh, and the, and the slaves as well. There were about 50 slaves. So there are a hundred of each. I mean, a hundred in total, I think. And uh, <laughs> I was working under uh, Bobby Payne, who was one of the original Muppet Builder guys. Uh, he, he, in fact, worked uh, on uh, Salmon Friends with Jim Hansen. I think he even went to school with uh, Jim Hansen. Wow. So, so he was heading up the Podlings and Slaves and brought me in to uh, help construct these guys. So it was a lot of work. But uh, we ended up giving each one a name. Somewhere there's a list somewhere of all, of all the names that these guys had. <laughs> like I remember one was called Bertha D Nation and you know crazy stuff like that <laughs> and in a strange sense of irony you were actually the slave master Skeksis <laughs> indeed yes which was total typecasting um, yeah it, it was, Jim used to get such a juggle he'd see me sort of in this I was, I was you know well I had my 17th birthday on the set on Dark Crystal, so I was around 16, 17, and he'd be directing me, and I'd peek out from this evil character, you know, and there'd just be this young kid looking out, and he just thought it was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite a juxtaposition to have the young face yeah, out of this, these hideous vulture-like monsters. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, he was great, though. He, he loved all that stuff. Oh, and so. the the challenge though of playing those characters because all you had was a monitor to kind of that you could see what the camera was showing, and you'd have to try to figure out where you were from the camera positioning on the little monitor. Yeah, yeah, and it was very hard. I mean, you know, the monitor generated heat too. The I had one of the lighter costumes. I think mine was something like seventy something pounds. Uh, some of the other characters were a lot heavier. Um, so, so we couldn't really see out of the costume as such. Not really. So. So you could you could look at the monitor, the one little um, six-inch uh, black and white tube monitor uh, thingy, and um, but of course when the camera turned over, the technology was nothing was digital back then. So as the as the prism flickered through the, the lens once the camera turned over, the image degraded quite a lot. So you sort of had this flickery, ghosty image of what you were performing to, and that was it. You know, um, so you had to remember that when you were performing. While it's this little tiny blurry thing on a screen, you're fighting to see where you are and what you're doing. When you look at dailies the next day uh, on the big screen, you know everything's the size of uh, trees and a forest, and it's huge. You know, so you had to scale down your performance a whole lot uh, on set and, and sort of compensate for that. 
um, which was really interesting. But also, you know, if they're shooting multiple cameras, we only saw the, you know, whatever camera feed we, I guess, you know, we felt was relevant. So it, it was quite a plus. We'd be walking around, hopping over cables and, and uh, jumping on boxes. And I, I was, I think, the only performer who actually did some shots uh, on my knees walking. Um, they had, you know, little people in other rigs for when you see them full length walking around or running, and they were duplicate costumes. Um, but I actually did some shots on my knees, which was the correct height for the Skeksis. Um, and I'm, I think I'm the only person who actually did that. So it, it worked quite well, but of course it's incredibly painful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and might explain why my knees aren't working any longer, but it was, it was worth it, you know, the movie and, um, yeah. My goodness. Now, did they, uh, with each shot, did they have to limit the time that you were actually inside the full costume? For the, the they, heat and stuff like that. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they were very good about giving us fans and water, and, and when we had major uh, setup breaks, um, they would get us out. It, it got we got pretty good at getting in and out of those things. It would take about two people to to dress us though and lift lift them onto us and feed the the cables on the head down onto us and strap us in because once you were, your arm was locked in there, <clears throat> uh, that was it. You know, you were stuck basically. So uh, the longest I was in there was about four hours. Ooh, wow. Yeah. When we just, I think the shot when we were looking up at the the crystal and seeing the crystal bat reflected in there, <clears throat> um, looking at, for Jen and Kira, it was that whole scene. Um, yeah, that was the longest though. But by that time, we were kind of used to it. You know, the very first scene we ever shot was the first time you see them in the movie going into the crystal uh, into the into the uh, bedroom, the uh, dying emperor's bedroom. And we were all in agony after that. It's like, oh no, what are we done? We, you know, we tried to rehearse and everything, but there's nothing like being on set and trying to pull it all together and, and uh, you know, shooting for for days on end. So uh, we were, we, they had a massive scene, which helped. But, but I think after that, you know, our bodies kind of learned. I was speaking anyway. It, it sort of learned what it needed to do and how to how to be more economical with with the. Uh, uh, with all the muscles and, and, and all that kind of thing. So it got a lot easier after a while. But, uh, yeah, it was still still uh, not an easy feat at all. <laughs> <laughs> but worth it in the end. I used to, uh, yeah. when I was home on summer vacation from school, that was uh, almost religiously, I had to watch The Dark Crystal almost every day. Wow. For years. I watched the That's Dickens great. out of that movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was no Dickens left in there, I noticed. So you were the one that took it. <laughs> Apparently I was. Come back with our Dickens. Stop that man. <laughs> uh, and even so much that uh, I remember when I found online that I could purchase a copy of the soundtrack, they did, they did a limited release. That's right, they did, didn't they, with extra music. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they, <coughs> Trevor they, they Jones. Had the original Trevor Jones scoring, and then they had where they lifted it directly from the film. You can tell on mm. the second disc. It even had some unreleased music from a funeral scene that was cut. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, really, really good. Yeah, Trevor was great. Yeah, he, we worked quite closely with him on things like the uh, the pod dance, you know. I did yeah. some of the drumming work on that. So in the wide shot, uh, when you see the drama, it's me doing doing the drama and the drumsticks. And then when, when they go into the close-up, Jim was doing the head, and Dave Gulls was doing the two sticks. So it switches back and forth, but in the in the wider shots, it's me doing the drama myself. We had to learn each each drum beat. So he gave us a, a, a cassette back in those days. We had these things called cassettes, and on the left tra- left channel would be the uh, the music track, and on the right channel would be a count. So he so we'd know where we were in the count on the track as we were learning. 
So, you know, it'd be one, two, three, four, two, two, three, that kind of thing. So, and we had music uh, charts as well for those that, that could use that. So we actually learned every, every musical piece, uh, thanks to, to Trevor. So, wow. Yeah. That, that is truly an epic score, which is almost as good as John Williams working on Star Wars. <laughs> John, uh, you know, how's that for I a just, segue? <laughs> I just love, I think I, he, I just love the Force Awakens soundtrack. It, I think it's yeah. just amazing. It's a beautiful thing. I, I, I just marvel every time I, I see and hear that. Um, it's, yeah, it's just so incredible. He, he, he makes that movie look so great with his music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. uh, and, if that makes sense. No, he, yeah. I love what he did. It's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, but you, so the, like the next film that you did, because this was my perfect segue, was you got to work on Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Yeah. And you got a long list of characters. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, being a puppeteer, uh, you can kind of, you're not seen, so you can move from character to character. So mm-hmm. so I think when, when I started out, I, I think initially I was a, a backup uh, person uh, for Jabba the Hutt in case they couldn't secure Dave Barkley. But, um, so I got measured up for that at one point before shooting. But so luckily they were able to get, to get Dave and Toby and it all worked out the way they wanted. And so I started out initially helping um, Tim Rose with uh, Snoodles and Akbar, and we'd rehearse those guys. Uh, that was, I want to say that was kind of like January of, of uh, 83, I was 82, 82, yeah, um, at Elstream, we'd be rehearsing that. And so our first big scene that we filmed with, with our creatures was Jabba's Palace. And I also rehearsed uh, some stuff with Salacious, just in case Tim was double booked on other characters, but... But I didn't end up performing any of Salacious. So I helped, yeah, helped Tim with Akbar and, and Snoodles and uh, Reese, the hand puppet Reese, and the slug tongue thing above Jabba's head. And, um, and then kind of went on to, you know, I was sort of there pretty well the whole time, went on to, Frank wanted me to help him with, with Yoda because I'd helped him with, with Fozzie and Piggy uh, beforehand, of course, and, and Augur a few times. So he knew my work and wanted me to help him with Yoda, which was fantastic because I was such a big fan of Yoda anyway. So that was really <laughs> nice. And, and you know, what's going to happen now with, with Yoda? What's, what's the deal? So, you know, his whole um, death scene uh, was, you know, was a, a really wonderful thing to, to be a part of. And, uh, yeah, and, and what else? And then, of course, Nine Numb came out of that as well because I was there and sucked my nose in and uh, interfered a little bit, so I got myself that job too. <laughs> Uh, now, when you're delivering lines for Nine Numb, were you uh, trying to say what Nine Numb was supposed to be saying? Because they were going to dub them over later. But I mean, what yeah, all the cre- yeah, we knew all the creatures were, were going to be replaced, and even a lot of the, the actor dialogue has to be replaced too because of, of sounds on set and clunky, you know, wooden sounds that aren't supposed to be wooden. Plus, um, sound matching up from angle to angle and that kind of thing. Oftentimes, even they have to replace their dialogue on a film set as well. But um, we knew the creatures were all going to be be redone with this damn guy. Um, but yeah, Nine was kind of an afterthought, that's the thing. And he, he uh, it, I think George knew that they needed a co pilot uh, for Lando and they hadn't really thought about it. So uh, they, he thought, well, let's have a, you know, we can't have Chewie. Chewie's somewhere else doing stuff. So we need, let's stick another alien in there, another sidekick, you know. And so then George, it was about halfway through the movie, actually. And George uh, picked out Nine out of the you know, chorus line, essentially, of alien, background aliens, because that's all he was. So, and he didn't have any articulation in the face or anything like that. He was just a generic mask. 
Um, <clears throat> he was literally number nine on the on the list of creatures, which is how he got to be called Nine Numb. <laughs> um, so so he pulled him out, and they didn't have any way to, to move the mouth, or there was no movement or anything, and they were going, Phil Tibbet was going to put something over the mouth so we couldn't see that it, it didn't move and that kind of thing. And I suggested I could turn this into a hand puppet so we could see have his head turn and, and move, we could see his mouth moving just like a big Muppet. So that's kind of what, what we ended up doing. Um, uh, so I sort of got myself that job. <laughs> so he was worked, you know, from below as a, as, a, as a Muppet, essentially. They had to cut a hole out in the falcon seat for me to, to scrunch in under there. <clears throat> it was a tight fit, but I got in there. And then, then um, but the script uh, just said nine numb chatters or whatever, or something like that. And then Lando would answer him. And I thought, well, how the hell am I going to perform this thing exactly? You know, I can't just, you know, make up random junk. It's just, he's not going to know when I'm done, and it just doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, this, well, this guy's obviously saying something for real, um, something logical that makes perfect sense to Lando. So, uh, and I knew we'd need, a, you know, a structure. Uh, so I actually penciled in real dialogue in English in my script of what I think he would have been saying, you know, uh, in English. Uh, and then I, I um, on the day of shooting, George Lucas was actually shooting, filming those, directing those uh, scenes, uh, because I think they were running a little bit behind, and Richard Marquand was on another stage uh, working on the Rancor scenes, directing those. So George actually directed these scenes, um, which isn't documented anywhere, I don't think. So, I, uh, so yeah, George was sitting in his little director's chair at the beginning of the day, and I said, hey, George, uh, I wrote in some dialogue here. Uh, is it okay if I just say this stuff? And he kind of looked all, it all over and, and just looked up, and we said, yeah, that'll be fine, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I got to speak everything in English, which made perfect sense for, for Billy D. Williams, so he would yeah. know, what, you know when the hell I'm done, and, and you know, it would help feed him his lines too. And it just made it really easy. And plus, you know, I could get sort of the attitude of what, whether I was fearful or anxious or happy, you know, it would be in the dialogue as well. And that would help Ben Burt and, and whoever else was coming in behind to, to try and match the emotion and stuff. So uh, that's how it was done, yeah. Did you ever get to hear George's famous direction where he would always tell people faster and more intense? No, I didn't need any of that. <laughs> no, I, I, <clears throat> luckily, I've, I've really... Um, I think, I mean, the only direction I probably, I remember, and it was really from the camera operators saying, you know, watch your head doesn't go out of frame on this other, on this other camera. And of course, I was only seeing one camera, I wasn't seeing both, so, um, stuff like that. But no, I didn't have, had to have any, any of that, actually. It was, uh, I guess it was, it was all pretty straightforward, so <laughs> I would say uh, there probably wasn't any direction. So whatever, whatever you see, it's just whatever I made up. You know, and the laughing and all this. People like his chuckle. That was just a yeah you know, something I threw I threw in. That wasn't necessarily <laughs> you know yeah. So so yeah, it, it's I, I do I do like to at least take some ownership of, of that side of his character yeah. because I I felt he was very appealing to look at and and lovable. Yeah, and I wanted some of that innocence to kind of come through in, in his uh, yeah yeah yeah. And his, he was I thought he was a very earnest character. So I want I wanted that to. To, I wanted him to be very likable. Yeah. And uh, did they have a walk-around version? Because I think I've seen Nine Numb is walking around on Endor at the, at the celebration. Yeah, exactly. That was, that, was the, um, that was when he was a background alien. I think some, somewhere now they're claiming that's, that was Ten Numb now instead of Nine Numb. I think, I think they came out with some toys uh, <clears throat> later on. Uh, and Lucasfilm might be saying now, in retrospect, in hindsight, that that's Ten Numb and not Nine Numb. 
uh, which is possible. But um, yeah, so that was that was those were all shot earlier in the film, and he was just a background generic alien. And they had a, a, there was an extra uh, inside that who's actually was a bit taller than me, actually. So <laughs> um, so that yeah, and then I wore it one time the actual suit for um, uh, walking into the into the cockpit and sitting down in the seat, you know, so I had to make sure that I fit it all and everything. Uh, so that if they had to shoot that, you know, so that was the only time I ever actually wore the, outf- the actual whole thing in Jedi. <clears throat> the rest was all, all puppets. So. Yeah. Did it just break your heart when they replaced size noodles though, with the special edition? Yeah. I, I, it, it, uh, I understand why they, they, with, you know, they were testing that stuff out and seeing how far they could go and what was possible. It was all quite cartoony, you know. It sort yeah. of broke, broke the reality a little bit, the universe a bit. And, um, yeah, it, I was I was afraid they were going to replace Nine Numb at that point. I thought, oh, my goodness, are they going to go through all the creatures and just replace them with CG? So oh, I that was a fear. It would have caused some riots if they'd take Nine Numb out of there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, replace him with, with some other totally different thing. Some a giant space chicken that would have been scary, but anyway, yeah. So, but but yeah, now it's all come back again as I knew it would. People yeah. just want to see the real the real thing with all its mistakes and limitations. I want to see rubber hitting the road, and that's what it's doing. Yeah, we believe it a lot more when it's, when it's actually yeah. there. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's it's great. Now I also see that you're Uncle Traveling Matt on the Fraggle Rock. Well, I was, uh, yeah, I was one of the um, European puppeteers for that. The, the principal guy was Dave Gulls, who does Gonzo. And, mm-hmm. and he, he, you know, he did those, in, he did some Uncle Matt's in uh, Canada, and I think he did New Zealand and Australia. Um, and then when we set up our co-productions uh, in the UK and France and Germany, we re-filmed, re-shot all the bits with a human actor. So, like, in, in, in England, we would have, it was a lighthouse instead of a, a, instead of a retired inventor doc it was a lighthouse keeper in a lighthouse um so we had a whole different set with different scripts um and we would have to match gobo coming through the the hole uh, to get the postcard so we'd have to reshoot those bits where sprocket would chase him back through the hole and match continuity on the costume and on the postcard and all that stuff so sometimes i would work gobo coming through and other times i performed uncle matt uh, in france and uk uh, doing different things, and then Dave Goles would have to loop and dub, you know what I had what I had done, and Jerry Jerry Nelson would have to re- revoice my Gobo stuff as well. And then uh, in France, I did some sprockets there. He was called Croquette, and it was a French retired chef there. <laughs> <laughs> and then in in Germany, uh, in Munich, I think it was we I did I think twelve episodes of Sprocket, and they were actually copies of the original Canadian. Uh, versions that set was the same, the scripts were identical, but with a German actor. So that's kind of how that worked. Now, is there a potential you're going to get to work on uh, these, this Fraggle Rock movie we keep hearing rumblings about? Well, I, if it happens, um, quite possibly, but I'm, I'm not aware that it's happening right now. Yeah, it's, we keep hearing rumblings that, that are, there's a script that's gotten prepared and they're maybe moving forward. And it's, it's like mm. we're being teased with it potentially well, happening. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, ten years of teasing. After a while, it's like, well, just you know, let me know when it's happening because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. people get excited and then nothing happens, and it's yeah. it's. Uh, I don't think it's helping anyone. Yeah, it's like that. Guillermo del Toro making the Haunted Mansion movie that we're waiting for. 
So yeah. Every once in a while, he says, "No, I am still working on that." We're like, "Yeah, okay." Well, yeah. 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 So you know, I hope it does happen, and um, it, it really could. It really could. It, I'll never say never, but I wouldn't listen to necessarily rumors or uh, or you know, sort of initial short term releases because a lot's got to happen. You know, it's either happening or it isn't. Basically, you know. Yeah. Right now, as far as I'm aware, it's not. So. Uh. Well, moving on though uh, into Labyrinth, uh, this yeah. I, I think the main thing I remember from Labyrinth is this is this movie gave me such a big crush on Jennifer Connelly when I was younger. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes, Connelly Jennelly, we called her, or I called her anyway. <laughs> so uh, she was she was lovely though. The old one and dear David Bowie, and yeah, it was a, a, a really uh, amazing time. It was so, such fun to watch Jim in his. He was like a you know. A, he was like in his element directing that film. He had so much fun with it all, you know. Yeah, it had that little bit of that zany, wacky Muppet feel, but also yeah. some of the some of the realism from Dark Crystal, but a little lighthearted. And uh, although I don't think it was until I was a little older that I truly understood the the coming of age story that it really yeah, is. Exactly. Yeah, and also you know they had uh, Terry Jones, of course, from Python, uh, mm-hmm. working on a lot of the scenes and gags and script things and ideas so they had a little bit of that sort of python uh, element in there too uh, so yeah it was it was a really it, it, it's I, I can appreciate it more now finally than, than at the time right. you know uh, i wasn't so into it when we were making it as as but now you know what we watched the uh, blu-ray dvd uh, like a month ago or something and uh, well, you know what this is a lot of fun this is really great and it still works it still holds up yeah. So a lot faster paced than The Dark Crystal. You know, that, yeah. That's a much slower paced. Uh, it's a harder film, I think, for for uh, kids with short attention spans to watch these things. <laughs> but Labyrinth, it still has some has a lot going on, you know. Yeah. I think that, you know, Jim wanted to correct the things from Dark Crystal in there. So that's why he put humans in and some music. and Yeah, a bit, a bit more fun. Although I didn't understand the ending until I got older. <laughs> Yeah, it was, exactly. I was very confused by that for years. I was like, "What do you mean you you have no power over me? What she? How does that? How does that defeat the Goblin King?" But as I've gotten older, it's you know you you start to understand of you know letting balancing your life of having to grow up and <clears throat> deal with you know regular life, but still keeping that little bit of whimsy and fantasy in your heart, you know, without yeah. letting it take over your life. You know, it's like, oh, I get it now. So yeah, I, guess exactly. I had to grow up to understand a growing up movie. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of a message from Jim, you know, don't forget to, to play once in a while. Right. Yeah. You, you can still be responsible and, and do the things that you have to do as an adult, but, but that doesn't mean you can't play. Right. <laughs> that was really what he was, you know, one of the things he was trying to say. Yeah. So, and I love the line there that she has at the end. It's like, you know, sometimes I need you just for no reason at all. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. exactly. That completely yeah. explains my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no reason other than, other than all the, the, the millions of, of listeners that, of course, yeah. uh, tune in and hang on every word that you say. Oh, of course. But it's also <laughs> it's our little place to have our fun and remember all the things we still love. Yeah, that's right. Stuff, really. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. It's too late for that now. So you might as well embrace it and enjoy it all. Yes, yeah, it's exactly. a good time for... For, for the fans and you know I'm just so I love what what Disney's doing and what they're putting out and and you know I, I always knew that that when they bought Lucasfilm it was going to be a, a great thing uh, yeah. uh, that it was the best thing that could have happened to, to those guys oh yeah and, yeah 
And there's actually a really comical picture I found on your website <coughs> of uh, you're sitting down and you got your hands up in Bob Hoskins' jacket filming Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, that's when he had Roger. There was a close-up of uh, Roger peeking out of his coat and he's stuffing him back under again. So, <laughs> so that was just me puppeteering under there. Uh, yeah, good old Roger Rabbit was amazing. Bob Zemeckis was such a, a fantastic director. He, he, I think the next project he was going to work on after that was Back to the Future 2 and 3. You know, they were shooting those simultaneously. So uh, it was a great time. It was right at the, in the early days of, of sort of the, or the earlier days of some of that. Um, uh, they hadn't quite transitioned into CG. They were doing a little bit of rendering here and there and figuring out uh, them, you know, a lot more uh, motion control technology for the cameras. So it was, it was a, a you know, 80, 80, when did we film that? 87, I think. I think we filmed it in 87. So, so ILM was still transitioning and, and uh, trying new things, and as always. And, and uh, it was a fascinating process to, to go through. I think, I think a lot of that movie was made on faith. You know, we, <laughs> we, uh, we think we can render this on top, and we, we think we'll get the animation done on time, and, and uh, we think the audience will buy it. And, you know, <laughs> it was a huge, huge thing. Uh, and I think it, it, it ended up probably going over budget and over schedule, and that's, that might be one of the reasons Steven Spielberg came around to keep an eye on things a little bit, you know. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah. It's been an odd experience, though, because it's kind of like doing your puppeteering, but you don't have a traditional puppet to work with because you're just making an object or making an, a character appear to be real when he's not going to be added until post production. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's still, it's all, the thing is, when you're, when you're doing, when you've done a lot of puppetry uh, elements, you know, you're used to working one part of like a right hand or, or eyebrows or an eye or whatever, a sneer or whatever, so you, you're sort of used to working um, uh, part of a character, and so when you're doing a weasel gun or or a, a, a weasel head that the head wasn't there and stuff, you're still making it believable in your mind, just as the actors were, so you're sort of using all the same, same techniques, and it's just you can't necessarily see everything, but we knew, you know, we knew what, what was going to be there, uh, and um, I, I think I think uh, we'd all done it enough to know uh, what what to expect. That our imagination was was going to fill in the gap. Any, just sort of sort of how you perform anyway. You you know, I mean, we know there's a camera right in front of us, but you ignore it. So <clears throat> things like that. You know, there's a bit of a you know green screen or blue screen behind us, and you ignore that as well. And your brain just fills in the gaps. And if we if we can make it real as both actors and puppeteers and, and animators and all that kind of thing, then if we believe it, then then there's a damn good chance we can make the audience believe it too. Yeah, uh, I think that's how that's how Bob Hoskins sold it too. You know, he made sure he believed it in his head that he was talking to a rabbit that wasn't there and stuff like that. And he, because he sold it to himself, he could then sell it to to us, the audience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, so in the 1990s, you actually, is that when you formed your company, uh, the Ultimate Animates? Yeah, let's see, when was that? It was right after Roger Rabbit. I, I think we, we actually started stuff in uh, about 88, 89, or thereabouts. Uh, and we, we did a lot of innovative stuff in the UK. And we, we, we actually created, uh, as far as I'm aware, the world's first uh, puppeteer animatronic recording system. <laughs> And we even pitched that for for the Babe movie. We didn't get the, the gig because our company was too kind of small, really. But mm. so we did a lot of things that hadn't been done before. 
um, which was was great. Yeah, and uh, directed shows, produced, and and built new kinds of puppets that hadn't been done. And you know, I hear years later that we were we were missed when we left, and that we were kind of legendary there at the time. So it was sort of a sweet spot of, of innovation and and not not being told no. You know, so people say you can't do that. So we would then go out of our way to prove them wrong. <laughs> a very Park, Walt Disney I. type of thing as soon as you tell him oh no we can't do that he's like oh yeah well we're going to do it <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's a good way to, to motivate someone yeah you can't mm-hmm. do that that can't be done <laughs> so that's when you started learning some of the techniques when because uh, you were an animator for Yoda in Attack of the Clones is that where you kind of developed some techniques um, um, I started yeah I mean the, uh, the, for one thing you know recording animatronics on a channel by channel basis is, is sort of like animating in real time anyway um, but I actually, yeah, I, I was I was using computers uh, toward the end of our company uh, run in the UK to do things like um, make a, a puppet wink in post production or um, uh, do full length uh, puppets, you know, painting out the rods and puppeteer and that kind of thing using some early and uh, morphing and and stuff. So this would be mid nineties, I guess. Um, so I was uh, I teaching myself a little bit of animation. It was sort of you know, we'd, we'd had Jurassic Park, I what year that came out. Um, the, the big turning point, though, was um, <clears throat> Toy Story 1 when that came out because that was sort of the first all-CG character-based movie right. um, that told a story with, with characters you cared about. So that kind of got my attention because, uh, you know, I saw parallels between what Pixar were doing with that and what Jim was doing with Muppets, and you know, I thought, oh, this is this is sort of an extension of what I do already. It's, it's bringing something to life that isn't living, isn't breathing. You know, only it's, it's animation and not not real time. <clears throat> so I sort of set about learning learning animation myself, and uh, made a point of getting recruited actually by Pixar at a London show at a festival they were attending, <clears throat> and um, yeah, went over to uh, San Francisco in '97. And uh, they had a, there was nowhere to go at that point, really, to learn uh, CG character animation because it was a new thing. Mm-hmm. So they had to hire people like myself who they knew could act and, uh, and perform characters. And they said, well, we can teach your monkey to uh, learn a computer, but we can't teach him to act and, and, and bring characters. So, so, the, so I guess the idea was that I was a monkey who could act, but then they could teach me how to use their animation system. So I went to Pixar University at the beginning of '97. And uh, uh, passed, got the diploma from uh, Steve Jobs and John Lasseter and Ed Catmull, and uh, we had a little graduation ceremony. And, uh, and then I, yeah, I was at Pixar, so that was my first actual animation job. Was at Pixar on Toy Story two, and a little bit on A Bug's Life. And a lot of the stuff I focused on on Toy Story two was Woody's Roundup, which of oh, course cool. was the the puppet nineteen uh, fifties yeah. puppet sequence, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to make sure that it had some reality to it. Instead of it being just sort of a fake, hokey, jokey, not, you know, really bad thing, I wanted it to actually, the, the pivots, points in the jaw, and the blinks and things to, to, to move in the right way as though a, a pin had been put through some wood and there were some rubber stoppers in there. So if you if you look closely at some of that Woody's Roundup stuff, um, you'll see, like, the eyes, when they return, they sort of have a little bounce, or the jaw might have a little bounce, like it's hit a stop, you know, and um, things like where the strings were attached had to be uh, in the right place. It's not just some fake thing. Uh, sort of looking at, at you know, the, the Woody, uh, uh, um, Howdy Doody and that kind of thing. That was sort of a, a, a touchstone for a lot 
part of that. And then I did some film tests and some animation tests of, of gravity and how the, how the uh, pendulum effect works on a marionette and all that kind of thing. <clears throat> and kind of brought it to, into a nice uh, real space, you know, that you could believe that it was a, uh, an old marionette show. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's almost photorealistic <clears throat> when you watch that those clips there because it it does remind me very much of marionettes the way it moved. It, it just turned out perfect. Yeah, and everything had to be. There was no simulation because I was asking them, hey, hey, can you guys do some string simulation on here, and you know, and, and so I can get that for free. And they said, well, we, but you know, we don't have the resources. There's not the time, the money, and at that time it was still going to be straight to video as well. So uh, that it had an even smaller budget. So the answer was no. You're just going to have to hand animate everything. Uh, yeah. So well, we'd animate the, the the character first, and then all the strings had to be animated so they wouldn't intersect and, and uh, had this little sway to them and all that and drag. Everything was hand, everything was keyframed. So no simulation whatsoever. So yeah, that was kind of fun. It was nice <laughs> to do that. So I did that first, and then went on went to Ireland for a year. <clears throat> in between now, I think I did some uh, Hershey's Kisses commercials. Uh, <laughs> at a company in San Francisco. Then I really went to ILM because I wanted to have some influence in the Yoda uh, CG stuff because I knew they were going to be doing that. And I thought, well, you know, I know how Frank's hand moves inside Yoda. I know why he moves. I know the kinetics of why he moves the way he does. I'm about the only person who does. So I really wanted to get in there and, and keep him more, you know, like the puppet in his movement so there was a better continuity. Um but I, they they put me in. I think I was supposed to spend maybe four weeks or something or whatever in in the ILM training uh, camp, you know, to use their software and all that kind of thing. But I got pulled out halfway through. Someone uh, left. They were on Jurassic Park three, and they left to work for a game company. So they need they pulled me in as an emergency person uh, to work on Jurassic Park three. So I was on that for about six months. By which time star wars was already underway and a lot of the other stuff had already been done and so when i came back to to, to attack of the clones uh you know there was, was just assigned some shots and, and nobody you know it's like shut up and animate you know we've got <laughs> footage to get out so uh i couldn't really have have much influence in that after all so i was there for one year <clears throat> and um they offered me you know do you want to stay on and work on ang lee's the hulk or something like that and, uh, so now i think i'm done now you know, I'd, uh, it would just be sort of repeating the same thing. I, I like I like new challenges, and, and uh, animation is is a very slow, painful process. So I wanted to get more back into the way of performing or doing some more real time stuff, at least, or you know, creating my own characters and having more say. So I, I decided it was time to time to to move forward. So yeah, and you even got a chance to bring Nine Numb back to the screen. I know, yeah, I always wanted to do them again, and, and I was hoping that might happen in the prequels, and of course it didn't. <clears throat> so, um, uh, but yeah, when I heard that, that they were they were continuing with uh, the, the, the next trilogy, then, then I, I got quite proactive in making myself known, saying, hey, if you want me to come back and, and do this character, I still can, I'm not too old, not too old. And uh, But I think a lot of it came... J.J. Abrams and, and Kathleen Kennedy bringing back, you know, as legacy guys. And it was really cool because they could have used anyone, you know, if they wanted to, just some local people and, you know, so hey, it doesn't matter. But they, they made a point of, of finding the original performers, which was really sweet. It was really nice. So that was a, a gift that uh, was a, a real thrill, you know, and it's, it's sort of ongoing. So that's really nice. 
And it was kind of a highlight for me in the Force Awakens scene, nine numbers oh. and piloting an X-wing. I was like, "Yay, nine numbers!" <laughs> yeah, that was exciting. It, it was it was a rush in that simulator, the X-wing simulator. It was the same one they used for the Falcon cockpit up on a, <laughs> a big hydraulic system. Uh, so it was it was yeah, I was strapped in, and that was it. It was like being in a, a bucking bronco at that point. Uh, <laughs> and it was still a hand puppet. No, this was all, all the all the, the new stuff. It's me in the suit now, and it's wow. it's an animatronic face. So that which is, I'm actually really excited about that because now I can finally look through his eyes and see. You know, I'm actually because he is supposed to be right about my height in reality, according to the Lucasfilm law. You know, I think I might be an inch taller or something, but he is supposed to be about my height. So, so you know, he's the correct height now. I can I can walk around. I can run around. I can do whatever I want, as though I'm a you know a regular character in the universe now. I'm not stuck in a damn hole in the floor or whatever. <laughs> so I love that. I love the fact that I can run around and and you know when we're rehearsing on set, you know I won't have the head on, so I can I can figure out all the all the looks and acting beats and my face puppeteer. You know I make sure they watch me on sets and we talk through my intents and timings on on what I'm going to do and why and. And, you know, I'm really serious here. I'm focused. And I'm going to, after this line, I'm going to turn my head this way and make sure you do a nice clean blink when I turn the head. Stuff like that. Yeah. So, you know, that's where the animation comes in, uh, which helps helps an animatronic facial uh, performance as well. Yeah. You know, they're all very, very related. So so I love just being on set, you know, as an actor uh, with everyone. Um, and it's kind of funny because a lot of people know who that character is. They're like, oh, my God, I remember him from Jedi. And... And uh, so, yeah, and it, did, it, did you know it was me that performed in then too? No way, no way. You look far too young to be in there anymore. So they all freak out. So it's, it's fun being, being back as a, a legacy character. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I think I was one of the, one of what, seven performers from the original trilogy to return in Force Awakens, I think it was. So, yeah. Was Nine Numb somewhere in the background in Rogue One? No. <laughs> oh, see, I, I, was, I, I didn't notice any recognizable characters other than yeah. Gold Leader and Red Leader was really awesome. But yeah. my number was probably around in the Rebellion at that time. Oh, yeah, he would have been around. So. I think I wonder if they just didn't think about that. Well, I mean, they would also have to make him younger again, of course, too. Yeah. But, but I don't know if that was just that they, you know, I mean, there was no real story point for him necessarily. It would have been fun to see him. Uh, poking around, but at that yeah, point, I don't know if he was, <laughs> but he might have been more, um, maybe he was still smuggling at that point and getting up to <laughs> other things, I think, doing his other, running with other ships, I, we'll, we'll, we'll see, I guess, I hope that he will be somewhere else at some point as a younger nine, that would be fantastic, but, that would be really but so I don't know if he was really, if he was an official part of the, the rebellion at, at that time, before Star Wars or not, I guess they've not really said but he was well. He got there's, there's the comic where he was um, he got he got he rescued people off Alderaan and then Leia gives him that medal. Uh, so I guess he was sort of in the background doing stuff story wise. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hope they write him in. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Give that him some, some cool. acting to do, some something meaty, some dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but we will be seeing him in some uh, further saga films, like episode well, eight. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he, he was one of the, one of uh, a handful of the X-wing pilots who survived. Of course, you know, you yeah. see him at the end there on the tarmac waving goodbye to the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> so uh, we know he survived, and, and Kathleen Kennedy did say that everyone was coming back. Uh, so I, you know, 
I guess I'm not saying anything I'm not supposed to. But, yeah. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be looking for him, but we don't know what he's doing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, but yeah, it's, I'm, I'm excited. It, it's, it's such a, such a great ride. Uh, for for you know both as a as a performer and and as a fan as well yeah you know I'm a fan too just like everyone else and I actually really love not knowing anything about the movies that I'm in only my scenes you know I don't <laughs> care about I don't want to know all, all the other stuff I just want to go to the cinema and see a, a whole new movie you know right. and that was wonderful seeing the Force Awakens for the first time I had vague ideas of a few bits here and there and that kind of thing but other than that uh, I had no clue and it was awesome it's great. Well, you've got a long list of things that we we haven't even cracked all of everything that you've done. I mean, I even see uh, you know Little Shop of Horrors and the Muppets uh, yeah. Island, uh, Muppets, so many yeah. different things. But I really got to wrap this up. Oh but boy! It, well, we can always do a, a second version next year or later on or something. A part two. Yeah, when the next Star Wars film's coming out here later this year, we're like, hey, so. that's true. We can continue where we left off, perhaps, and maybe yeah, talk a little bit about. You know, all the later Muppet things and TV series and yeah, so it's all, it's good. That's it's, it's been a, it's been a lovely a lovely thing and and um, you know I'm still I'm still enjoying doing it all and and I think that the a lot I, I haven't done yet that I want to do, so I, it's time to, to get moving. So, yeah, right right now I'm about to um, uh, release these. I've been threatening for a, a year or two now to, to sell these uh, Queenie practice puppets that used to be a part of a training course of that, that we used to do. And so I'm making my final round of them currently right now. Uh, and then that'll be it. I won't make any more. So, and then that... I actually yeah. saw a video on your YouTube channel about that. that although I guess it was from 2015, where you had that little Queenie, little little dog puppet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, uh, let's see, the, did you see the little John Claude Van Damme spoof I did? No, <laughs> I, I haven't seen everything yet. I actually <laughs> just found the YouTube channel and oh, okay. I subscribed yeah. with my, I don't think my that's normal account. So. so, so yeah, so that ties into my the next project that I'll, I'll be launching is um, is the very the world's first. Uh, online puppetry training academy called uh, Secrets of Puppetry for Film and Television. Yeah, well, so, the secret I uh, definitely need to direct- learn is how to not get your hands so tired, because I, I, I've learned a little bit of puppetry, and I've done okay. some, some things, uh, like a church or whatever. <clears throat> and last character I worked, uh, it was this it was, it was a stuffed rabbit that they'd converted into a puppet, and yeah. his head was so heavy on my hand that even though I was just using my thumb, I was so sore... After yeah. about 30 seconds, I'm like, there's got to be a trick to, to not hurting yourself. And I started doing the, uh, where you attack the words, you kind of lean lean into them a little bit. Right, your yeah. Hand, the, and the, 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 uh, yeah, there are definitely tricks, and I, I, I cover all that stuff. What I do is basically strip everything back down to the bare bones, to the, day, you know, day one. How do you stand? How do you... How do you hold your arm and shoulder and what, what parts on your arm move and what don't, what don't and how do you compensate for that? Everything is broken back to, to the raw basics. And it all comes from uh, workshops that actually, uh, you know, both from what I've learned throughout all the years, but also uh, Jim and Frank and all the puppeteers gave these uh, workshops initially on the Dark Crystal, hand puppetry workshops. And, uh, and some of that has been now folded into, into this. So it's kind of a, a legacy from what Jim and Frank actually taught. Uh, so uh, when I started out, there was nowhere to learn this stuff. You know, there was nothing. So I wanted to, to put that right. Um, 
So that's uh, secretsofpuppetry.com. If anyone wants to sign up for to be on any notification list, feel free to put your name in there, and, and I'll notify you of stuff's coming out this year, though. So, in fact, um, next week the, the queenies will be available, and uh, within a month or two there'll be some stuff online for the training. So I think that's kind of important, you know, as teaching and, and, and putting that information out there for the next generation. Yeah. And also people can find you at quinzonestudios.com. That's the website I found. They can, yeah. It's just like, I don't know how old that thing is now. I need to hit it with a wrecking ball. Uh, so <laughs> I, 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 haven't, I don't even know how I would go in and change things now. It's so old and nasty. But, but uh, so you can go and poke around anyway and see what, what where my head was at 10 years ago. But, yeah. <laughs> so um, otherwise, uh, most of my updates get done on Facebook and, and uh, links or whatever I'm up to from there, I guess. But, yeah. So, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a good time to be a puppeteer, and it's a good time to be a fan as yeah. well. And that is secretsofpuppetry.com, which I'm looking, at, I'm looking at the page right now. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes so people can check it out and learn how to uh, get your own Quinny and learn how to <laughs> properly work Quinny. Yeah. Puppet, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice and simple. That's the idea, though. You know, you can't hide behind the puppet. But also, so if you make mistakes, it's going to show in the puppet, which is what you want. But also, because it looks so cute and fun, you also get instant gratification. So you hopefully you have that loop where, which keeps pushing you forward. That's that's the theory behind it all, anyway. You know, you want, you want some satisfaction to, to yeah. uh, see your progress, you know. It shouldn't be hard work and punishing and un unsatisfying so yeah you right. just have some joy and all this stuff it's all about play and that's what jim henson is all about like have fun you know have a laugh and experiment try things it's not the end of the world but enjoy it you know so that's what that's kind of the, the, what it's all about really just just letting people have some fun they don't have to be a professional puppeteer they can just do it for themselves or for their kids or for a little local library or what you know hospitals whatever it doesn't matter just just have fun with this stuff you know people love it you can be a kid again yep and you can find new ways to annoy your wife with new puppets. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, let's see. I think I'm up to 173 right now. So I have a nice long list of ways to annoy Jerry, but she's very patient. So sometimes she even laughs at my jokes, which is crazy. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, thanks for so much for spending some time with us here. This has been awesome. awesome. And sharing all of this with us has been great. Thank you. Thank you. And I still, I still have some pixie dust left, so I'll save that for later. Oh, yes. So. You, you always got to keep that in heavy supply. Exactly, exactly. But uh, thank you to all at Neverland and, and all your lovely listeners. I really do appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. We invite you back next week for more fun and adventure. Until then, remember to keep a pixie in your pocket. It's that young at heart, positive attitude that you can share with others. And remember to visit our website at NeverlandPodcast.com. There you can find links to our news page, our shop, our contact page, where you can easily send an email to podcast at NeverlandPodcast.com. You can also find our Neverlanders page, where you can find out how to become an official Lost Boy or Pixie, because girls are too clever to get lost. Become a real Neverlander! Please feel free to leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at NeverlandPCast. And like our Neverland Podcast fan page on Facebook. We also have a group on Facebook for you to join. We also appreciate your support to keep the Neverland Podcast up and running. Visit Patreon.com slash NeverlandPodcast to donate to Keeping the Pixie Dust Alive. 
Copyright content featured on the Neverland podcast is copyright of their respective creators and used under fair use license. All original content is copyright of Blue Band Productions and a very special thanks to Yeehaw Bob Jackson at yeehawbob.com for our new ending music. God bless! Yeah! Hello everybody, this is Yeehaw Bob Jackson. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, it's true. Neverland Podcast, we 